0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Welcome to season two, episode nine of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. On Friday, May 6th, 1927, a large black trunk was abandoned in the luggage office at Charing Cross Station in London. The man who left the trunk had instructed the attendant behind the counter to handle the case with care before leaving in a taxi as he would be travelling later in the day. The trunk sat amongst the other abandoned luggage in the stifling heat until Monday morning. Staff arrived to begin their working week and were hit by a pungent odour. The source appeared to be coming from the large black trunk. Instinctively, the rail staff thought the smell and size of the trunk seemed suspicious and so the police were notified. An officer arrived and pried open the trunk. The rotting smell intensified. He peered down to see five large parcels wrapped in brown paper and tied with string. He lifted out each heavy package and unwrapped the paper. In each he found severed bloody body parts wrapped in rags and items of clothing. The victim's body was taken to Westminster Mortuary where top pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury was called in to examine the body which looked to have belonged to a young woman. A detective who supervised the autopsy described the experience as ghastly enough to be unforgettable. Bernard Spilsbury had also worked on the famous case of Dr. Hawley Crippen in 1910 where he examined the remains of a body found in the doctor's cellar which turned out to be Dr. Crippen's wife Cora. The body in the trunk had been crudely hacked after death and the torso was minus its limbs. The head was still attached to the body and the arms were separated at the shoulders. The legs had been removed at the hip with what looked like an abandoned attempt to cut one of the legs in half. The body and its appendages had been carefully wrapped and placed in the trunk. Along with the victim's body, a black pair of women's shoes, a handbag and a pair of underwear had also been placed in the trunk. Bernard Spilsbury identified that the body had also been wrapped in rags that bore laundry marks. The pathologist estimated the woman had died two to three weeks earlier and had been approximately 35 years old. He believed her cause of death to be asphyxiation and noted bruises on her back, forehead and stomach which had all occurred while the victim was unconscious. The trunk itself and the items found within it contained many clues. Seven years later on June 17th, 1934, William Joseph a cloakroom attendant for Southern Railway, came across a trunk at Brighton train station. Like the first trunk discovered in 1927, The foul smell coming from the case caused some concern and the police were called. Detective Bishop from the railway police was assigned to open the trunk and as he did the full force of the odour hit him. He tentatively removed layers of bloodied cotton wool and paper stained with dark blood. Inside it contained a torso of a young woman. The very next day at King's Cross Station in London the woman's legs were found in a suitcase. Brighton police found the investigation too large to take on themselves so requested help from Scotland Yard. It was big news and the public was outraged. Investigating officers reviewed the case and cross-referenced the victim to see if their disappearance corresponded with one of the 700 missing women throughout the UK at the time. Unfortunately, no solid leads were established so public appeals were made and a month later they conducted house-to-house inquiries throughout Brighton. While trying to find out who the unidentified woman in the trunk was, police went door-to-door visiting homes near Brighton train station. Kemp Street was less than half a mile away. The basement flat of number 52 was the home of Tony Mancini. He had recently been living with his lover, Violet Kay at another address however moved there after telling friends Violet had left to go to Paris a few months before, a claim that most of her friends disputed. Tony Mancini had a trunk in his bedroom that he had been using as a coffee table, but was leaking a foul-smelling liquid. After he left the property, police discovered the body of another woman in the makeshift coffee table on July 15th, 1934. In 1927, after the discovery of a number of body parts in the trunk, the underwear found with the victim had been marked with the name P. Holt. This information combined with the laundry tag led the police to Mrs. Holt who lived in Chelsea, London. This avenue of investigation wasn't as fruitful as officers hoped when they realised Mrs. Holt was still alive. Although she was not the victim, they still felt this was a lead worth pursuing. Mrs. Holt was wealthy. She had employed ten female servants over the last two years. Police surmised that the underwear could have been stolen from the employer by one of her staff. Nine of the female servants could be accounted for, but the tenth, Mrs. Rolls, a cook that had been employed at the Holt residence for a short period, had not been seen in some time. Mrs. Holt was asked to visit the morgue to see if she could identify the head of the victim and confirmed it was Mrs. Rolls. With this information, police managed to track the victim to a property under the name of Mr. Frederick Rolls. The officers went to see him, and Mr. Rolls didn't seem too surprised by their visit. In fact, he was expecting their call. He had seen the dead woman's description in the press, and along with his partner's absence, he started to believe it was her. He informed the police she was not his wife, despite them living together and her taking on his surname. Her legal name was Minnie Alice Bernatti and she had been married to an Italian waiter but left him to live with a lover, Frederick Rolls. Both Mr. Bernatti and Mr. Rolls were eliminated from the inquiry quickly but the case became more complicated to investigate when it was discovered Minnie was a sex worker and that meant it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to find all her clients. However, they managed to track down a few of her regulars. Tom a bricklayer and Jim a chauffeur. Jim was rather smitten with Minnie and would send postcards to the home she shared with Frederick. Another man who also knew Minnie looked promising and was a butcher. The pathologist believed the killer might have a rough understanding of anatomical knowledge which was used when dismembering Minnie, suggesting the culprit could have possibly worked in a slaughterhouse or as a butcher. After a short investigation, it became clear none of the men questioned were tied to the murder. The police decided to pursue another angle and started work to trace where the trunk had come from. Pictures of the large leather trunk were published in the press. The owner of a second-hand shop in Brixton came forward as he remembered selling the distinctive trunk with the letter A stenciled on the side at the beginning of May 1927. His daughter bolstered his claim by recalling she had repaired the trunk by dyeing and sewing on two leather strips where it had previously been worn. In addition to the shopkeeper, numerous cab drivers came forward claiming to have given the mystery man with a trunk a ride. One of the drivers proved to be a solid lead. He recalled picking up two men who were in a rush to get to Westminster Police Court in Rochester Row by 1pm. The driver was hailed by a man standing outside a building opposite the police station. He helped the fare lift his heavy trunk into the cab, then gave him a lift from outside 86 Rochester Row in Westminster, to Charing Cross Station. The driver remembered the trunk was so heavy he joked with his fare, it's not full of money, is it? The man laughed and replied, it was full of books. The taxi driver's recollection of events was corroborated by a bus driver, who recalled a male passenger getting on the bus with an empty trunk at Brixton Road and got off near Rochester Row. When police arrived at 86 Rochester Row, they discovered that solicitors had sublet two rooms to Edwards & Co. and estate agents. The lease was in the name of John Robinson. The room had been abandoned in a hurry, the furnishings were left and it was leased with a hasty note to the landlord which read, I am sorry to inform you that I have gone broke, so cannot use your offices further. Let the people who supplied the typewriter take it away. The solicitor said John Robinson left abruptly on May 9th, though his lease was paid up to the 22nd. Investigators tracked down his typist, who said the last time she saw John was on May 4th. He had come into the office drunk and smelling of alcohol with an unknown man. Police tracked John Robinson's lodgings to the Kennington District of South London, but they were too late as he had already left. They noticed a return telegram addressed to Robinson, Greyhound Hotel, Hammersmith. The recipient was Mrs. Robinson, who had worked at the Greyhound Hotel. Unbeknownst to Mrs. Robinson, she wasn't actually married to John. He was already married and had committed bigamy. John had previously left his wife and four children without seeking a divorce. When the police broke the news to her, she agreed to help them by setting up a meeting with John at the Elephant and Castle pub on Newington Causeway on May 18th. She was accompanied by Chief Inspector George Cornish. Denying any involvement in the murder, John Robinson willingly went to Scotland Yard where he was questioned. Chief Inspector Cornish later said nothing in his appearance or mannerisms suggested John was a man who would commit cold-blooded murder. When questioned, John's account of May 4th seemed to correlate with his typist. He spent the day drinking in a local pub where he met a man who served in the military. The two men continued drinking at John's office until roughly 4.15pm. He then returned home and played billiards. He willingly took part in a line-up. However, the shopkeeper and the taxi driver did not recognise him, so police had no choice but to let him go. The officers were frustrated until Chief Inspector Cornish decided to look once again at the evidence found with Minnie Bonatti in the trunk. He laundered the blood-soaked duster that had been wrapped around Minnie's head, which removed a patch of dried blood that obscured some lettering. The words Greyhound Hotel were revealed. A second search of John Robinson's office was ordered and the police unearthed a bloody match caught in the wicker of a waste paper basket. His typist also confirmed that she had seen the duster used in the office. With the new evidence, John Robinson was brought back to Scotland Yard. Confronted with the recent proof, he finally confessed, saying, I realise this is serious. I met that woman at Victoria and took her up to my offices and I want to tell you all about it.
0: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Scent Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Scent Air comes in. With over three decades of experience, Scent Air leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Scent Air is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate free, cruelty free, safe for families, and EcoVadis certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The trial opened at the Old Bailey in London on Monday, July 11th, 1927. The courtroom was so packed, onlookers queued outside in the searing heat hoping to witness the trial of the body in the trunk. John Robinson's defence argued that he'd been accosted for sex by Minnie Bernatti of Victoria Station while he was buying stamps. He said that he offered to take her back to his office. Once there, he wrote letters while she sat waiting. She started to get agitated, demanding money. John refused, then Minnie became violent. As she charged towards him, Minnie lost her footing and hit her head on the coal scuttle, which is a container used to carry coal. John then left the office at 5.30pm, expecting Minnie to just be dazed. He hoped she would recover and then leave. But when he returned the next day, she was still lying where he had left her. John said he felt sure no one would believe him, and he began to panic. He said, I was in a hopeless position, I didn't know what to do. His initial plan was to cut up her body and dispose of each part in various locations piece by piece. He bought a butcher's knife along with string and sheets of brown wrapping paper. He spent all day dismembering her before storing her in a cupboard. He later came up with the idea of disposing of Minnie's corpse in a trunk at Charing Cross Station. At one point the defence claimed the police had coerced John into confessing, however the judge swiftly threw out this claim. They also had a number of other theories, with one being that Minnie had died of shock and another she had passed away due to a gas leak. Both these claims were disputed by the pathologist who explained Minnie's heart was strong and there was not a poisonous dose of gas in her bloodstream. Yet another theory was Minnie's cause of death was an epileptic seizure. The defense had brought in a witness, Minnie Bernatti's partner, Frederick Rolls. He claimed to have seen Minnie having seizures on numerous occasions, though his treatment was never sought for a condition. There was no proof to the theory. Frederick also went on to testify that his girlfriend was an alcoholic and could become very violent. John Robinson then took to the stand and admitted he struck Minnie Bonatti just once. However, his statement was at odds with the pathologist's report. Minnie had suffered extensive bruising just before death, And some of the marks on her ribs were consistent with pressure bruises from her knee. John was asked by the prosecution if what he was saying was true, why did he not report the incident to the police? He retorted, Because I was in a blue funk, I didn't know what to do. The judge made it clear to the jury they had a serious decision to make on whether John Robinson intended to cause bodily harm to Minnie Bernatti. It took just 45 minutes before the jury returned with its verdict. The judge donned his black cap and John Robinson stood motionless as he was sentenced to death. He was hanged at Pentonville Prison on August 12, 1927. Carrying out the post-mortem on June 19, 1934, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who carried out the same procedure on Minnie Benatti seven years earlier, Discovered the woman found in the trunk at Brighton Railway Station was between 21 and 28 years old, weighed approximately 119 pounds and was 5 feet 2 inches tall. She was also 5 months pregnant. A heavy blow to the head with a blunt instrument was most likely the cause of death, but the butchery was so savage it was hard to ascertain a definite cause. The only clue found in the trunk with her was a piece of paper with the word Ford written on it. Despite much interest from the press, the woman whose body parts were disposed of at both Brighton and London train stations was never identified, though the search for answers likely led police to the third woman found in a trunk, Violet Kaye. Tony Mancini had many jobs. Petty criminal, fairground boxer, and in his youth he said he worked as muscle for the London gangster Harry Sabini. He also went by many names, including Tony English and Tony Gold. But his real name wasn't Tony Mancini, it was Cecil Lois England. He had previous convictions for stealing silver and clothes in London and loitering with intent in Birmingham. He met Violet when he worked in a restaurant in London's Leicester Square, but the business closed down and Tony found himself without employment. Violet had offered him a place to stay, and the couple moved to Brighton where they thought they could find work, especially in summer when the tourist trade in the seaside town was booming. Violet had been charged with prostitution on a few occasions, and it was a profession she drifted into after work as a touring dancer had dried up and her drinking became excessive. Many years before, she had a short-lived marriage with a Welsh miner named Saunders, but after the marriage dissolved, she lived with a new boyfriend and adopted his last name of Kay. The month Violet disappeared, Tony finally found work at the Skylark, a cafe on West Street where he worked as a handyman and a waiter. The cafe overlooked the sea and had extensive trade from Brighton holidaymakers. When acquiring new lodgings, Tony pretended to operate a clothes press and they registered under the name Mr. and Mrs. Watson. The couple frequently moved between low-rent flats more than a dozen times in six months due to Violet's frequent male visitors and the attention it brought. Violet's work was their main income during the summer months as it was easy to pick up men from the pier. Tony wouldn't stay in jobs for long. He would make himself scarce when Violet had company, leaving to go to the pub or go to talk to women on the seafront. Now he had employment at the Skylark Cafe, he didn't have to find excuses to leave their lodgings. Violet was said to be a heavy drinker and often used morphine. At 41, she was insecure about her relationship with Tony, who was 17 years her junior. The night she was last seen, she went to the Skylark to see Tony at the end of his first week at the cafe. Violet was unsteady on her feet and seemed agitated. Violet had been drinking and got suspicious about the relationship between Tony and a teenage waitress, Florence Attrell. Violet reached boiling point and caused a scene in the cafe. She was humiliated and Tony wanted to get her out. She left the Skylark and that was the last time Violet Kay was seen alive. Staff at the cafe forgot about the argument until a few days later when a colleague asked her boyfriend where Violet was. Tony said that she had left him, taking few belongings and had gone to work in Paris. Violet's sister Olive was living in London and was due to come to stay with her sister and Tony for a holiday. A couple of days before she was meant to make her trip, Olive received a telegram reading, 11th of May, going abroad, good job, sale Sunday, we'll write, bye. But Violet wasn't in Paris, she had been killed, discreetly wrapped in blankets and placed in a cupboard in the flat. Tony carried on life as normal, and a couple of days after Violet's death, he took the young waitress from the Skylock, Florence Attrell, out dancing. They returned to the flat and Tony offered Florence some of Violet's clothing. There was a green dress, a hat and a black coat, with Tony claiming there had not been enough room in Violet's suitcase for her to take them to Paris. He offered to walk Florence around the flat in case there was anything else she would like to take. She noticed a pair of woman's slippers tucked neatly beside the bed. The bed had no bed sheets and when Florence asked Tony about this, he answered, I'm moving so I've packed them. Tony had just secured a room at 52 Kemp Street. He found it through an advert placed by an old couple at the Skylark. Tony put Violet in the trunk and pushed her by car to his new address. He claimed it contained books, which at least explained the weight and used cleaning fluid to cover the odour. He used the trunk as a coffee table at the bottom of his bed. After a time, his landlords who lived below his room complained of the foul smell and pungent brown liquid seeping through the ceiling. By this time, Tony had been living with the decomposing corpse of his lover in a trunk at the bottom of his bed for two months. Things came to a head when, coincidentally, an unidentified woman in a trunk was discovered at Brighton train station. Tony Mancini got spooked when reading in the newspaper that the police were conducting door to door interviews in Brighton. As Kemp Street was near the station, it was going to be one of the first streets they visited. He knew it was only a matter of time before they were knocking at his door, investigating what the foul smell in his bedroom was. He fled to London, and when the police finally made their routine visit to his lodging, they opened the trunk. They found Violet with her legs tucked up to her chest covered by a blood-soaked coat. Tony had found temporary lodgings in a Salvation Army hostel in the East End. He traded his clothes with another occupant and went by the name Swinty. It was when he decided to leave London and travel to Kent that he was caught on July 17th. He was picked up for vagrancy at the Sidcup Bypass just 36 hours on from fleeing Brighton. He was tired of the chase. When he was asked for his identity, he gave his real name, Cecil Lois England. He said, I am the man, but I did not murder her. When they arrived back at the police station in Brighton, inquisitive locals surrounded the car to catch a glimpse of the newly dubbed Seafront Romeo and mounted police had to disperse the growing crowd. When questioned, he claimed he returned home after a shift at the Skylark Cafe to find Violet dead bloody sheets with a handkerchief tied tightly around her neck his assumption was one of her clients had been responsible he said i knew they would blame me and i couldn't prove i hadn't done it tony panicked and came up with the idea of hiding her body in the trunk after the decomposition started and he could no longer keep her in the cupboard the trial began on december 10th 1934 in Brighton. The small public gallery was so full, people waited outside in the cold every day over the five-day trial. Amongst them were female admirers of Tony Mancini. The prosecution's case seemed solid when the UK's top pathologist Bernard Spilsbury took the stand. He believed that Violet's cause of death was shock after being hit on the head with a blunt object. The theory of being struck by a blunt object was also bolstered by evidence found at the scene. In the cellar of the property where Violet died, the charred head of a hammer was discovered. Further evidence seemed damning. The writing on the telegram sent to Violet's sister Olive was compared to menus Tony had written at the Skylark Cafe. It was a match. Witnesses for the prosecution then took to the stand. One woman claimed Tony tried to persuade her to provide a false alibi when she met him after he'd fled to London. He'd wanted the woman to say she was in Brighton with him in May, having tea with Violet on the night of her murder. She was to tell investigators that Violet mentioned she had three clients due to visit that night, so she would have to leave them to their tea. Even more damning evidence came when three men took the stand. They claimed to have spent time with Tony in an arcade called Aladdin's Cave in May. All three men agreed that he had told them he had given his missus the biggest hiding of her life. Tony allegedly said, why knock them about with your hands, you only hurt yourself, hit them with a hammer and slosh her out the same as I did. It was the defence's turn to put their arguments across. They relied heavily on the fact that Violet's job as a sex worker was risky and various men would come and go. They named someone they believed to be a suspect. A client of Violet's called Uncle Charlie would often visit and buy her gifts. Not long after she went missing, Charlie was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Despite pointing the finger at Charlie, there was no evidence, just speculation. The defence had another theory. Morphine was found in Violet's bloodstream. Despite being tested months after her death, they said she must have been so intoxicated a fall down the narrow cellar stairs could have cracked her skull. The pathologist countered this theory by saying it was very unlikely. And the hammer was a more probable weapon. Tony then took to the stand and claimed since their move to Brighton, Violet had been living in fear. He claimed they only moved so frequently on her insistence as she feared someone was chasing them. He claimed he started to believe her when one day two men threatened them with razors, though there was no evidence or witnesses to this incident. When asked why he didn't report Violet's death, Tony said, Where the police are concerned, a man who's got convictions never gets a square deal. He added that he had no ill will against Violet. I did not kill her, he said. Strange as it is, I used to love her. On December 14th, the jury took two and a quarter hours to return their verdict. A shock intake of breath rang throughout the courtroom as the verdict was read. Not guilty. Tony Mancini looked visibly shocked as did the judge who had already got his black cap ready to pass down the death sentence. So where are we now? The second woman found in a trunk at Brighton Railway Station remains unidentified to this day. The chief inspector at the time had one theory. He believed that a local abortionist called Dr. Messiah could have been involved, and so the suspect was put under covert surveillance. No evidence could be found to support their suspicions. However, Dr. Messiah later moved to London, and while performing an illegal abortion, a woman died in his care. He managed to escape prosecution, and only came off the General Medical Register in 1952 when he retired to Trinidad. It is unlikely that Dr. Messiah was responsible for the woman in the trunk's death, as police initially thought. No abortion attempts were observed during the autopsy and her dismemberment was crude and lacked anatomical skill and knowledge which the doctor would have had. After being acquitted for the murder of Violet Kay, Tony Mancini was free to live his life. He was seldom heard from. He worked in a travelling fair as part of a magician's act and then signed up to be a merchant seaman. He then changed his name was divorced twice, remaining happily married to his third wife in the north of England. Then in 1976, he spoke to a journalist for the now defunct Sunday newspaper News of the World. He confessed to killing Violet 42 years earlier, explaining that during a heated argument she tried to attack him with a hammer the couple used to break up coal for the fire. The two wrestled and Tony managed to get the weapon from Violet, but she demanded it back. He lost his temper, and threw it at Violet, with the hammer striking the left side of her temple, killing her instantly. He said, I honestly didn't mean to kill her, I had just lost control of myself in the heat of the moment. I'm not proud of the things I've done, quite the opposite. But when you've harboured a guilty secret like mine, it's a great relief to finally tell somebody. People will still think I've been a real villain, and maybe they won't forgive me, but at least I hope they will understand." Despite his new confession, due to the lack of corroboration, a charge of perjury was rejected and police concluded that he couldn't go on trial twice for the same murder. Tony Mancini died later that year. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support They Walk Among Us and receive early access to ad-free episodes along with other extras, just head to patreon.com forward slash us. This week's podcast recommendation is Death's Door. Each week, host and attorney Dominique Mix guides you through the legal intricacies of America's death row case by case. I'd highly recommend listening to episode 3, The Case of Timothy Hennis. Sentenced to death for murdering Katie Eastburn and her two daughters, Death's Door highlights how crucial it is to follow investigatory procedure and how double jeopardy is interpreted in the US legal system. You can hear a trailer for the podcast at the end of this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or through Instagram and Facebook under the Walk Among Us podcast.
2: Welcome to Death Store Podcast, a podcast that explores some of the most haunting cases from America's death row. I'm the host, Dominique Mix, and I hope you'll join me weekly as I explore cases of the innocent and guilty, the executed and the exonerated, all of whom have one thing in common. They all know what it's like to look through the bars of a cell on death row. From the crime to the case's conclusion, I explore evidence, corruption, characters, and, of course, the crime itself. You can find the show on the ACAST app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice. I hope you'll join in, and in the meantime, don't forget to hold your loved ones tight.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.